The following audio-supported podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Please speak with your healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. The guests on today's show were paid to participate in this podcast. Welcome back to Just Listen, Voices of Pyruvate Kinase Deficiency. My name is Dr. Rachel Grace, and I'm a pediatric hematologist and clinical researcher at the Dana-Farber Boston Children's Cancer and Blood Disorder Center. I'm also an associate professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and your host for today's episode. I'm excited to introduce our guest today, Jonathan Watson, an amazing 18-year-old college student with pyruvate kinase deficiency, and his mother, Alejandra Watson, who is also a founding member of the PK Deficiency Foundation. Welcome to today's podcast. Thanks for having us. I thought we could start by having you tell us a little bit about how you came to know that Jonathan had pyruvate kinase deficiency, how his diagnosis was made. Like a lot of patients with pyruvate kinase deficiency, after a few hours that he was born, they came back and let us know that he was very jaundiced, which is usually very normal in little babies, but they usually is more like after the first 24 hours after they are born. But Jonathan developed the jaundice much earlier and it was increasing and a very high rate. So they were very concerned about the bilirubin going so high and high brain damage for the bilirubin going that high. So they were just trying to see if the phototherapy was going to work and stop the bilirubin climbing up. So they put it but in the morning at six o'clock in the morning, his hemoglobin was dropping down while the bilirubin was keep climbing up. So he stayed in NICO for five days. They did two exchange transfusions while he was there and then let him go home. But a month later, we went to see the pediatrician and he did the hemoglobin test and he was going down again. They were like, oh, well, he's okay. He was like an 8.0. And the doctor was like, well, it's okay. It's fine. But his pediatrician was very worried about the numbers. So they sent him back the next week to get a lot of work and his hemoglobin was, I believe, 5.8. So he was very low for a newborn baby. And they admit him to the hospital. They run a lot of tests. They did bone marrow aspiration in that time. And two months later, they give us a diagnosis of pyruvate kinase deficiency. They, at the beginning, they were thinking it was other disease like CDA, congenital dyserpyretic anemia. But he came back with uh, pyruvate kinase deficiency. And Jonathan, how old were you when you started to understand the diagnosis of pyruvate kinase deficiency? I think about as far as I could remember, because I don't really ever remember a time where I didn't know or at least somewhat understand what pyruvate kinase deficiency was, because I was always getting blood transfusions. And I remember that I understood it as my blood cells dying quickly. Yeah, they were dying faster than I could make them. So I needed blood transfusions. That's about as far as I can remember. That's what I understood. Eventually, my understanding obviously got better, but that's for other reasons. Over time, Alejandra, how have you managed your relationship with Jonathan's hematologist? At the beginning, of course, it was very, it's not that it was difficult, the relationship with the doctor, it's that I didn't know nothing about pyruvate kinase deficiency. They kind of put a big wall in between you and the doctor, and as a mother, it makes you feel powerless, weak. You don't know what you are facing, and usually, well, that's fear, and the fear takes over, and you don't know what questions to ask. You have no idea what to do, what you're facing. It's okay, it is going to be okay, and the first 
first question is like, is he's going to be okay? And it's like, well, we will try, but probably he won't last more than three months. We wanted to be honest with you. So that's when I guess I started my grieving period and I started to kind of grieving, but at the same time, I'm thinking he's not there yet. So I need to do something. I need to figure out what it is. So I start to try to find information and honestly, it was nothing. And I'm not talking about that. It's like 50 years ago. I cannot even imagine the people 50 years ago. It was only 18 years ago and it was very difficult as a mother and see him so fragile, so little, not because he was fragile because of PKD, just because he was a baby and just babies are fragile. So I really started to create in myself a way to cope with my grieving. So I decided what options do I have? Do I going to be sitting and wait or I'm going to do something about it? So I start to do research and I start to investigate. I talked to the doctor. We were thinking in what options do we have? So his way that he was managing was really low his hemoglobin because I was not just in other things on Jonathan, but it was very difficult at the beginning to get an understanding back and forth from the doctor. We decide to take a second opinion. I travel different states to find doctors that they will get some information about PKD. And I ended in Chicago getting an MRI for Jonathan to the liver. And the doctor that I met there sent me to where is Jonathan now being treated. And these doctors, they did a whole assessment on Jonathan. They start like from scratch. They are all the testing new. So they put all these doctors together. They each one make their own test. They came back to us. They told me, look, this is what Jonathan's body needs right now. He's growing, he's doing this and that. He doesn't have a spleen, I, we understand it. So we need to create a plan. So I started to develop an amazing relationship with the doctors when they we sit down together like a family instead of being the doctor and the mom who doesn't know absolutely nothing and taking my perception and they told me, you are the one who knows your child. We see him once every month or once every three weeks but the reality, the only person that see him and he can answer all these questions and he can help him is you. So it's been for, oh, what, 10 years now, a great relationship with them. And that relationship grows so strong and I think so deep with them that Jonathan also started to create this passion and love for medicine that is where he is now in college it's in pre-med in trying to do I guess the same thing for other patients as a doctor. Agios is a biopharmaceutical company that's fueled by connections with patient communities, professionals, partners, and each other. Building on these connections and the company's unmatched leadership in the field of cellular metabolism, Agios is pioneering therapies of genetically defined diseases a broad group of rare and more common diseases that are typically severe and life-threatening. Near-term, Agios is focusing on advancing a clinical pipeline of medicines for hereditary hemolytic anemias. To learn more about PK deficiency, visit knowpkdeficiency.com. That's K-N-O-W-P-K-Deficiency.com. And how have you found the relationship between Jonathan and the doctors over the last 10 years? How has that changed over time? And how have you, Jonathan, changed in terms of your role in the visits? 
and communication with the medical team. As far as I can remember, when I was much, much younger, during hospital visits, I would mostly like be looking around. I mean, I would be playing on my iPad, waiting for the doctor to come, but also I would at times be looking around to the room at the pamphlets that they always have about random medical stuff. Like in a cardiologist appointment, they have this wall that has pouches and there's a heart diagram and an explanation of a heartbeat in all the valves in my neurologist room. She has textbooks of neuroscience basically sitting in the corner and then there's those diagrams of the brain and nerves and blood vessels and all that. And I'd always look at them and sometimes ask questions about them just because I liked hearing the answers. I liked learning about that stuff. It interested me. That was when I was really, really young. As I got older, because I became more and more interested in pre-medicine, I started listening more into the conversations that my mom and the doctor were having. I would talk more. I would do more than just ask questions about the pamphlet, like ask questions about the medicine or the treatment or whatever, just wondering how it works, kind of developing my knowledge of medicine, I guess. And yeah, I guess over time as my mom lays off from completely controlling my care and everything, for me to have more control over it, it's become more and more like I kind of converse with them like I'm a second doctor and we're trying to figure this out as if I wasn't the patient even though I am. That's how it is now versus how it was before for me at least. I think as a mom that I can tell you a little bit is that I try to educate Jonathan in a way that he was feeling empowered and not just me, that he will know that the one who had the illness, the disease, the disorder, whatever you want to call it, it was him. And at the end, he was the only one that he can explain better to doctors how he was feeling. So I give him every time a little bit more freedom until you explain the doctors, I was like, you explain the doctor, how do you feel? You explain the doctor what it's this. He was very curious all the time. He was like, mom, how is this? I, I said, well, I don't, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but next appointment with to the doctor, you go and ask him. So he started to develop that relationship with the doctors. In, and he forget about it. I, when we were at the doctor's appointment, I was like, Jonathan, remember that you wanted to ask this question? So he's like, oh, yeah. And the doctors were showing that much passion about how they were finding things that Jonathan, I guess it was so contagious to Jonathan that they started to talk about with so much passion that I was like, wow, I didn't even know about all those things. You know, some mom was just like, wow, that's really crazy. Oh, it's amazing. And how old Jonathan, were you, or Alejandra, if you remember when you started to report your own symptoms, when you came to the appointments and you would tell the doctors how you're feeling and you would maybe even tell the doctors which medications you're taking. Do you remember how old you were when you started to do those things more, your mother less? I have very poor memory, but I think around 10 to 12 years old, somewhere in that range, right? Yeah. Actually, by the age of 12, he was totally in charge of his medication. I was still supervising, but he was totally in charge of his medication. He knew what medication he needed to take at what times, how he needed to take it. 
he actually created a video. I think that he was 10 years old or something like that when he created this video in how to use one of the medications that it comes in a pump and how to inject yourself and how to put it. He did it and he posted it in YouTube, you know, for older parents and children to see. And did you find that your hematologist also help to encourage you to start to report your own symptoms and kind of be the person to answer questions at appointments at a certain point? Yeah, pretty sure at some point my doctor started just straight up asking me how I felt instead of my mom, what happened or how was he feeling over the weekend? I'm pretty sure at some point it was more just asking me, how did you feel over the weekend? And because of how I am, I would never really answer very detailed. So my mom would have to elaborate. There was a point where they started asking me instead. Do you now have times where you go to appointments by yourself? Yeah, actually, since I want to say my three appointments ago, maybe sometime a week or two before I turned 18, I've had to go on appointments on my own because I'm in college and my parents can't always make it because they have other responsibilities. How did that go? Actually, the first few times, because I wasn't 18 yet, I had to, I think... Yeah, some of the appointments, I had to like get written permission sent from my mom. It was annoying. But at that point, it was just me. So I really had to like work with my doctor, like a partner, basically, we do the test, get the images, try to figure out what it means. And what we should do from there. And I would say it worked out. I guess it forced me out of my shell. But I guess I remember myself not talking very much during appointments. Maybe I did more when I was younger and I just don't remember, but at least now I remember from recent appointments, I do have to talk a lot. So I would say it's not like anything's gone wrong. It's not like it wasn't productive. And are there things that you worked on when you were younger in terms of being able to remember what to talk about at appointments or which things to report on or things you wanted to bring up? I think my mom tried to get me to write stuff down for the next appointment, like in a notebook that she had, if I had any questions. But other than that, I don't really remember anything else. I, I just, yeah, I just either didn't remember or she reminded me, or I guess I wrote it down. But I don't remember specifically preparing for it. It just kind of happened over time. He prepared. It's just that he doesn't realize that for him to write it down ahead of time, the questions that he had, it, it was making him ready for his appointment. Right. I think that it is an excellent strategy to write down your questions and the topics you want to bring up at your appointments so that when you get to the appointment, you make sure you get to all the things that are important to you and that you're really advocating for the things that you want to happen at the appointment. You think that you can't remember things that you've done in preparation for this time where you're at your own appointment without your parent there really speaks to how well you've transitioned to this time in your life where you're coming to an appointment as an adult, that it sounds like it was in many ways smooth for you, that you have been working on this so much over time from when you were young to when you were 10 to 12 years old. And then I imagine through your teenage years, it was a process that happened over time almost naturally because of your relationship with each other that you came to these appointments recently as a 17 and 18 year old and were sounds like very prepared and it was sort of seamless. So I'm impressed with how well prepared you are that you can't even remember preparing almost over this time that it was just a natural progression for you. And it sounds like your hematologist too helped you to prepare for this in some ways by asking you the questions in the past and having you answer those questions rather than having your mom answer them. Yeah. 
it wasn't just the hematologist too. It was like all my doctors, they would at that point around 10 to 12, they'd start just asking. Yeah, I think I can say that we're lucky or maybe to be prepared when we were going to the doctor's appointments and letting always Jonathan know ahead of time what, because I always told him what to expect. For me, I never liked it to lie to Jonathan and tell him, for example, if he was going for a blood test, oh, everything is going to be fine. It doesn't hurt. Or not. I never did that. I always say that it may hurt you. It may not. Some people doesn't feel anything. Some people will feel like a little pinch. So he was prepared. And I think that, like you said, it came so natural for him that he cannot remember or notice all those of that process because he was well prepared for his surgeries or everything because we told him and it worked. And he's been always like overthinking. It's like, so what about if I do this more? What about if I try to, he always tried to find different ways to help himself. Of course, I try to help him as much as I can, but of course I'm not a doctor. I'm just a teacher and I'm a specialist in trauma. So I kind of, I guess that helped a lot to help him overcome and be understanding what was the next step and what he can do to make things a little bit easier for him. So I like knew he could like it, the iPad or any other video game. But he was also, like I said, it was very curious. So in the iPad, he was sometimes looking like for the body and trying to figure what part, because he was like, okay, Ma, they are going to take my spleen. Where is my spleen located? So how I'm going to feel like, okay, well, let's go. And I'm going to show you on internet how, where is your spleen? And they always say, like, I like to think with you, what are you feeling? What do you think that is going to be better? So they usually work a lot with Jonathan in that way. I can tell you that a lot of times I was just like present in the doctor's appointments, just present. But I was doing a very few conversations or things with the doctors. Jonathan and them, they've been always making the plan, the next plan or the next step. One part of having a chronic medical issue that is so difficult during childhood is the amount of school that you end up missing for appointments and for illness. And I wondered how you navigated that, how you advocated for Jonathan at school. Have Jonathan, you worked to stay on top of all the material that you're in college and pre-med, you clearly stayed up on the material, but I'm wondering how you navigated that because it can be so challenging and there can be so many missed days related to having an illness. Well, in terms of what I did, I know some appointments, we always tried to schedule appointments on break days where I didn't have class. I wouldn't have to miss it. But on days that I would have to miss, I always saw, I can't really explain why, but school was always one of my number one priorities. Yeah, school and playing video games. <laughs> they were my two like biggest priorities when I was younger. And so... I wanted like really badly to keep up with school. I would rather have missed an appointment than missed a day of school. I was a weird kid. But if I had to miss a day of school, I would always try to prepare ahead of time. Like ask the teachers, is there going to be any homework that day? Can I get it the day before? Is there going to be a test? Can we reschedule it a different day? Just trying to make sure that I lose the least amount. Realistically, I should have been doing the homework while I was at an appointment. But during blood transfusions, I don't know why, I just can't. I don't know what it is, but uh, I would do the homework after when I got home. And sometimes it would take all day pretty much. And then I'd get like maybe an hour of video games at night. But uh, yeah, I would just keep on it, basically. 
I'd try to prepare ahead of time, try to keep up with homework. And if I couldn't keep up, then plan catch up. That's how I try to keep up with it, I guess. I try to stay organized and get prepared for missed days. Did you find that you needed a plan in place with the school because of missed days? Were there you had accommodations? Yeah, my mom did have an IEP plan. She had like a lot of accommodations for me. Honestly, most of the teachers, I don't think they might have read it, but a lot of them didn't really follow it, except for like one or two that were really nice. But it was like if I miss a day, I can get teacher's notes and get an extra day and a half on deadlines. If the homework was due that day and I can't turn in, or if the homework was given that day and I couldn't get it till the next day or something like that. So it was basically like a backup plan because usually I was prepared enough that I wouldn't need to use accommodations. But I did have stuff in place in case of emergencies, in case of stuff like that that I can't prepare for. Of course, when he was growing up, a lot of other problems were also appearing in his health. And the doctors, they were finding a lot of complications with him. And not only the complications, but what happens if he gets sick? So a lot of times he had it to be admitted for a week, two weeks at a time, whether it was pneumonia or he had a couple of crises where his bone marrow shut down. I believe it's a topic crisis. So those times you are not prepared for it. It just happens. So I was trying out with the school. And this is a tricky part for a lot of parents. The schools, they tend to not to give you an IEP for a child if he's performing properly at the school. But it's not always necessary. We find it and we learn because also we hire a lawyer to help us through the process. So she did all these accommodations and she talked to the school and she told them, well, he's a chronic ill child. You're not going to penalize this child because he's sick. So what we had to do is to make accommodations that if a child misses five days of the school, one of the teachers will have to go to the school and give a tutoring for him if he needs it. If it's more than five days, we can prepare for more things like a homeschooling with a teacher going to home twice a week and help him to catch up with the school. So we had a lot of good accommodations that I, I wish I could say that I helped him, but I didn't I, we it was this amazing person that helped us through because like I say we as a parents we try to do the best we can but we don't have always the tools and we don't know all the resources that we can use so she did it she created beautiful accommodations for him and at the same time he was getting the social interaction that I felt that it was very important for him. So I never wanted to isolate him from the world and I never wanted to create a kid that he will have more stress in his life that he already has. So I believe, I truly believe that kids need to have this interaction, this social interaction. And at the same time, they, they create this awareness on themselves. You know, Jonathan, so, uh, John Dees or his having other problems and people like okay why he's not coming to the school or the kids like and he gave him the power to tell the kids oh i have a blood disorder that makes me have blood transfusions every so often and sometimes i get a little bit more sick than a normal person and i need to be at the hospital so it was not the taboo for him or for other kids what was going on with jonathan 
he was open and the kids were a lot a lot of the kids they were very understanding and a lot of his teachers a lot of them they had no clue what it is and you look at the child that looks okay so they don't believe we create with the help of the lawyer we create a, a health protocol for jonathan to help the teachers and the school to understand what he was going what look for it what he was having the possible side effects or the outcomes that it could happen for x or y we had a, like a cheat sheet so in that way they can look fast if it's an emergency look fast what to do how to act and they will be so he had it a few times that they had to call the ambulance and that Jonathan had it to get picked up at the school. But the health protocol always helped because the ambulance, the people of the EMS people, they knew what to look for, what to do in the moment while we were taking him to the hospital. So I guess it was very helpful to have the health protocol for him, for the school and for the EMS. And also for him to have a better or an easier time at the school because the teachers were giving him extra time. I think it's so helpful to have those plans in place with the school. I think your points about reminding the teachers and reminding the school and really having at least annual meetings to talk about the plans with the new teachers for the year, or if there's been other staff that's changed to make sure that everybody's aware of different issues that could arise for an individual. And I think in addition to the IEP, there's the 504 plan that people can have in place for accommodations. And it's wonderful that you had a lawyer helping to navigate that with you and to advocate for specific accommodations other people that sometimes can be helpful too are part of the medical community, sometimes social workers and other people who work within the clinics can help to work with the school to create those 504 plans and to understand what accommodations will be helpful. So I think having other families hear what you advocated for and what was helpful for you will be helpful to them too. But knowing that they can look to their clinic because sometimes needs even for other people who have the same condition with parvic kinase deficiency, the individual needs might be different. So it's helpful to work with the staff in your clinic and other people who can help advocate for you with the school kind of as a team, as you were describing to create accommodations that you need. I'm interested to hear how the transition has gone for you in going to college, off living on your own, being in charge of your medical issues if they arise, and how you've navigated that over the past year or two, and what that transition has been like for you. I guess transitioning from high school to college. I know my high school senior year was a bit crazy. I went off, so I obviously had to do a bunch of applications during the year. Actually, I got accepted to Michigan and get in and all that. I guess, so the first thing, I was really hoping to get into Michigan because then I'd be right there in my hospital. So I was really excited for that because I got in, I'd be right next to my hospital. Wouldn't have to change hospitals, wouldn't have to have a whole big mess about that. There was like one, kind of one thing I had to, I was like worried about. It was like, what if something happens while I'm by myself here? Usually my mom will like take me to the emergency room if I'm really sick or take care of me but here I'm kind of by myself I can't really do that and then there's also the fact that I need blood transfusions and have all these appointments so not only will I have to deal with worse concentration getting closer to a blood transfusion and my schedule being all weird not really as many breaks missing a day is like a lot worse if it's not recorded 
like lectures or anything like that, which I didn't know they recorded a lot of the lectures. So I was very worried about trying to find time for everything among my appointments. So I know one of the things was they're trying to set up a, they don't really have an IEP plan, but they have something similar at college. It depends on the college you go to, but at Michigan, U of M, they have like a SSD thing that's basically like an IEP plan where you can ask for accommodations. So we tried to set that up. For some reason, it required a specific form we didn't have, so it took a bit longer, but it's basically set up now. And also, I saw there was a program for Michigan that I could apply to where you could like, it was during the summer. It was almost like you go to U of M early and you like start some classes early and you get kind of a feel for how it is, but they structure it for you. So it's not exactly like college, but it gives you an idea and it helps you prepare. And I was like, this would be perfect to test out what it'd be like. What do I need? Because I didn't know what do I need to bring? When would I need blood transfusions? Because I would be doing a lot more than I normally am. So higher activity means a higher heart rate. It actually somewhat correlates to a higher rate of hemolysis for me, especially in the summer and heat. So we were like kind of testing the waters with all that and pretty much figured out, okay, it's a lot of physical activity, more blood transfusions, but I can handle it at least. So I just, I guess the transition to college for me was a lot smoother because I had that opportunity in the middle of the summer to test and figure out what to do, what not to do, what would work, what wouldn't. When do I need something in college versus when I needed it in high school? How would it, classes look? How would it all work, basically? And I got to figure that out before actually getting into college. So that was nice. It was a pretty smooth transition. It sounds like you continue to see your pediatric providers for the most part. Have you talked with them about when you'll transition to an adult hematologist or adult specialist and how that process will work? Yeah, I think it was like... I want to say half a year ago we started talking about it maybe longer i want to have to switch to an adult clinic for my blood transfusions and they've told us pretty much they still see patients until 21 in the pediatric like they'll see patients up to the age of 21 in the pediatric clinic and i think even older people can still meet their like pediatric doctors they just won't have as much expertise beyond the age group they're really specified for so we're pretty much thinking like that for now, I'll kind of stay the same, you know, I'll still have the same doctors, I'll still go to the same places, and that around 21, 20, you know, when I get older, older, then I would have to start thinking about switching doctors, switching clinics. I probably won't switch my hematologist just because there's not a lot that know my disease very well. Maybe other specialists will change just because they focus less on PKD and more on iron in my organs. So it won't really matter as much that they know PKD inside and out. I guess it still kind of matters, though. I know at least from my lung specialist, actually, because I'm doing so well. We discontinued, well, I guess I'm going to see her in like two years again, just for a checkup, just in case to see how I'm going, because I might actually be fine now in terms of my lungs. And after that, if I need a lung specialist again, I actually would have to get a referral for like an adult one. While all the other ones right now are staying the same because I still see them regularly and they still have an active commitment to me, to my health. That's the best way to put it. And I was going to ask you each a similar question about what advice you would give to other families where there's a child with pyruvate kinase deficiency as they think about 
how to prepare for being a different age over time and transitioning eventually to adult care and independent appointments like you were describing. What kind of advice would you give to a child who has perfect kindness deficiency about how to take that on over time? And what advice would you give to parents? I want to say probably, at least for parents, probably start as early as you can in terms of trying to prepare them for being on their own in terms of health care. I think that's what my mom did pretty much. As soon as I could talk and walk, she always tried to guide me into being more independent, asking my own questions, eventually start talking with the doctors by myself, all stuff like that. So really, it's probably better to start as early as you can. You don't have to go do a lot. You don't have to just throw it all onto them. Just one at a time, maybe try to get them, guide them into understanding their disease more, understanding the effects on their body more, guide them into maybe talking about how they're feeling with the doctor and just becoming more and more independent and maybe asking them, guiding them on to making their own decisions about their health. And for kids, I really don't remember when I was younger. I don't know. Try to educate yourself try to understand more about your body. It will be very helpful later on when you're on your own in medical appointments. So you won't be like the parents that don't know what's going on and just kind of ask the doctor to make decisions for them or make terrible decisions despite what the doctor says. If you understand your disease and you try to understand the medicine behind it, the biology, your body more, it's a lot easier, your appointments to do them. It's a lot more productive and it's a lot easier of a transition. I guess stay curious. My mom would probably be better for advice. That's great advice. Alejandro, do you have advice? Well, yeah, I just like reinforcing what Jonathan says. I think that one of my biggest advice is to let them be curious. Kids are curious by nature. So reinforcing that curiosity and help them to go through that curiosity, it's so important. Uh, it's also important for us and for the doctors to let them explain to the kids. I think that at least for us, what it worked really good is that I let him create that relationship with the doctors because it's not about me, it's about them. And it's how they are going to manage these things. And of course, as a parent, you always wanted the best things for your child. I, I don't know a parent that they don't want the best things for their child, but sometimes we don't know how to do it. And that is the most difficult part as a parent to know when to put your hands off the table and say, you know, here you are, you can do it. So I try to transition in myself into letting him go. And I think that, like he said, one of the most important things is that he tested himself what it was to be away from mom and dad. So I transitioned in a lot through how to get with the doctors and how to speak with the doctors and how to do all these things. But the reality is that I didn't transition myself into let him go, if that makes sense. So I do remember when before he was leaving, like the first, what even when you know, the summer, I was feeling very depressed and I was crying and my husband is like, I feel it too. And I was like, yeah. And, and it's like, mom, and he told me, mom, it's not I'm living forever. And I say, I know, but it's a big accomplishment. We are so proud of you and we are so happy that you are doing this. But at the same time, and he told me, you know, mom, you prepare me for me to do this. And I say, yeah, I know. 
but I didn't get prepared myself for to let you go. <laughs> so it was like a, a very emotional for me. I can tell you now. I'm still emotional about it, but I know we are so close, and I never realized the impact of us doing all these things that we did since he was little until now that he's an adult, a legal adult, and he's making the right decisions. And we don't need to be on top of him. And and I, I know his doctor, like I said, I, I always was like, Jonathan, you need to pay attention to what the doctor says. Remember that you are the one who had it. When you grow up, you are the one that is going to discuss these things, not me. It, it, it's simple. Mom's saying you need to listen. And I'm Mom always saying, you need to pay attention. I'm like, <laughs> I don't want to. But. So I think that also as a mom, I listen to my child needs. I didn't try always to put what I wanted, but what also he wanted. So he, like, for example, the doctor was talking to me and it's like, well, we need to do this. And I was like, well, you need to talk to my son too. Because at the end, it's his life. It's his body. Explain him why. So Jonathan has been always like, always, he always says, well, you're going to do this, why? Why do I need to get this surgery? Or why do I need to take this medication? How is it going to help me? Is it going to make any changes in my life or in my health? So he always take like a very informed decisions. My advice is like that, that parents, they do the research, let them take decisions with you of course you're not going to let them like if they want to jump over the window right that the kid can take a good decision for their own health so research do your homework and do your homework with your child i want to thank you both so much jonathan and alejandra for joining today for sharing your experiences and all of your advice i know this is going to be extremely helpful to so many other families as their children grow up and have different roles in their clinical appointments and think towards being an adult and going to appointments by themselves and really advocating for their own health needs. And so thank you so much for being here today and for sharing your stories. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Just Listen, Voices of Pyruvate Kinase Deficiency. Don't forget to hit that follow button in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Share the show with members of the PK Deficiency community. And if you'd like to learn more about PK Deficiency and see what resources there are to support people impacted by PK Deficiency, visit nopkdeficiency.com. That is nokpkdeficiency.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Rachel Grace, and we look forward to talking with you again.